Good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. Here for the first time, a special welcome to you. And if I'm not going to see you uh, on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, then Merry Christmas. I know that many of you will be here. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Our Christmas Eve candlelight services are just always one of my highlights of the year. Um, This is our first time in three years where we can do this on Christmas Eve together. If you were here last year, you remember we had to bump it forward a few days. We did Christmas Eve like December 21st, and the candles hadn't arrived, and we used our cell phones. And... um, But uh, it's just going to be, I think, a really special time together. Um, But if you can't be here, if you're going to be elsewhere with family, other things, Merry Christmas to you. And one thing I just want to encourage you to do is to consider, is there somebody in your circle, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, that you can invite to come on out Christmas Eve? Um, I, I, I think that that's probably the time of year where people are most receptive to an invitation. I think maybe there used to be like Easter Christmas people, and I think maybe now it's just Christmas people. And so it's an opportunity. So is there someone in your life that you could extend an invitation to? Please do that. And uh, we've got those little paper invites, or you can go to our church Facebook page and, and share it in that way and just amplify that invitation. That would be awesome as well. So think back to when you were a little kid. What did you want to be when you grew up? What did you want to be? Anyone brave enough to shout it out? Pop star? Pop star? Okay. Hairdresser and a nurse. Hairdresser, nurse, zoologist, I heard. Okay. Is that? Teacher. Teacher? Veterinarian? I don't think anybody is any of those things. You're not far from a pop star, you know. <laughs> they, they did a survey actually recently of kids ages 8 to 12 in a number of different countries and asked them which profession they wanted to be when they grew up. They gave them five options. One was teacher, one was musician, the third one was um, astronaut, fourth one was a professional athlete, and the fifth one was a YouTuber. And... Uh, <laughs> I think you maybe know where this is going. What do you think the top response was amongst American kids? YouTuber was number one. What do you think was bottom? What's that? Yep, of those five. Good guess. That's probably what I would have guessed. I think that was second from the bottom. It was astronaut, right? So top was YouTuber, bottom was astronaut. And uh, they surveyed the kids in China. What do you think came top in China? Astronaut. Astronaut. And what do you think was the last in China? YouTuber. So I don't know what that says about the future of our, uh, of our mutual countries, the trajectories we're on. I think it, it maybe says an awful lot, but um, I'm, I'm afraid of the future, maybe just slightly. Uh, we live in a celebrity culture, though, don't we? I mean, everyone, I say everybody. So many people, they, they want to be famous. They want to be stars. They want the attention of the world on them. We're a society that elevates celebrity, uh, Paul's going to show us in this passage, we're going to look at what it really means to be a star. What it really means to attract the attention of the world. We're continuing in our series through the book of Philippians. This is a little powerful book, and if you've been with us over these past few weeks, you know that the theme that we're looking at is joy, because this book talks more about joy than any other book, which is incredible, because where was Paul writing this letter from? Do you remember? 
prison. And he was writing, and, and, and he was, you know, facing possible execution, a death sentence. And he's writing about joy, and he's writing to Christians who face all sorts of persecutions and other challenges. And, and essentially, the, the purpose of this writing was to help them find joy wherever they found themselves, just to show them that they can live in joy um, no matter their circumstances. And so over these past couple of weeks, we saw how Paul was using the example of Jesus Christ and how Jesus humbled himself and, and in, he was showing us that, that, that joy isn't found in elevating oneself and having a self-centered life, seeking one's own interests first, but true joy is found in other-centeredness, in, in humbly serving others. That's the path of true joy. And so those that humble themselves, God will exalt. And we looked at that, uh, that, that in the example of Jesus over the last few weeks. And last week, we saw how um, that kind of flew in the face of this common statement that many believe is in the Bible but isn't in the Bible. And if you were here last week, you remember it's the number one ver Bible verse that isn't in the Bible, which is God helps those who help themselves, right? And last week, we kind of challenged that a bit. And we saw that that's not really that biblical, What's biblical is that God helps the helpless, and God helps those who help others. He, he exalts those who humble themselves. And yet, as we continue in these next verses in Philippians 2, we're going to hear something that makes us wonder, well, is, is that true that God helps those who help themselves? Because that sounds an awful lot like what Paul is about to say here in chapter 2, verse 2. 12. Now, the, these couple of verses, if, if you actually listen to my sermons, and I don't assume that because you're here, that means you listen. I'm too smart for that. I've caught on. But you may pick up that I, 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 these are some verses that I tend to reference a lot because I think these are really important verses. And so we're going to stop and we're going to unpack them a bit more here because they're really important and because they're really easy to misunderstand. Paul will say, he continues here in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Okay. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which is to say, obey Put into practice, follow the example of Jesus. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works. Now he's talking about two works. He's talking about our work and God's work. And you might hear that and go, is he saying, in fact, that God helps those who help themselves? Is he saying, hey, church, do what you can do. And if you do your part, God's going to do his part. Is that what he's saying here? You might hear, work out your salvation and ask, does that mean, is, is Paul saying that if we just do enough good, if we obey enough, that we will be saved? We will earn from God forgiveness. We will earn from God His favor and His acceptance. We will earn heaven if we do enough good. Is that what he's saying? Work out your salvation. Save yourself by your own goodness. Well, I think most of you, you probably know that doesn't sound quite right. In fact, that conflicts with what Paul will say elsewhere, like in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. 
when he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by, say it, works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So he makes really clear there, we are not saved by our works at all. We're saved apart from our works. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. We are not saved by our works, but he does say we are saved for our works. Our works don't lead to our salvation, but our salvation will lead to good works. So he's pretty clear there, there that it's not true that if we're good enough that we can earn God's favor. That comes by faith apart from our works because of God's grace shown us in His Son. Hmm. So it doesn't mean that, work out your salvation, earn your salvation. So what does that mean? Well, maybe it means God has given you this incredible thing. He's given you salvation. Now put it to use. Don't leave it up on the shelf. Use what He's already given you. And and this is kind of how I, I would have viewed what Paul is saying here. God has given you something incredible. Actually use it. Like Erica might say when I'm grumbling about, you know, our broken sink. Well, fix it. I gave you power tools last year for Christmas. This is a hypothetical, by the way. This is not even remotely close to reality. Rusty, I gave you power tools. You could do it. You could fix it. It'd be so much better. They're in the garage. Go get what I gave you. You have the tools. Is this what Paul is saying? You have the tools. God has saved you. Now put that to work, flesh that out in all the different areas of your life. Is that what he's saying? And and I don't necessarily even think that that's not true, but I've come to see that's actually not what Paul is saying when he says work out your salvation. To understand, we really need to know what what that word work out means. It's the word katergadzeste. Say that 10 times fast. And if you want to know what any word means in, uh, in the Bible, then the best way to, to, to find the meaning is to look at how that author of that uses it in other places, and it'll help you understand. Paul uses this word a lot, and that'll help us understand what it means here when he says, work out your salvation. So let's look at a few of those examples. I mean, there's a bunch of them even in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4, verse 15, he says, because the law brings wrath... And there is no, where there's no law, there is no transgression. In other words, because you have the law, it proves that you are a lawbreaker. So it brings the result of the law in your life is that it brings wrath. The law brings wrath. That's that word. Work out. Chapter 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering, say it, produces perseverance. Our suffering results in perseverance. This is uh, Romans 7, verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. There's that word. It produced this. It brought this about in my life. A few verses later, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about 
to work out, to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In fact, every single time when he uses this word, it's very clear that what it means, uh, work out means it, it produces, it does, it brings it about, it results in. So if we're going to take Paul seriously here, what he's saying is your obedience produces salvation. Your obedience results in, brings about salvation. But how does that square with what we just heard, what he said back in Ephesians 2.8 when it says, he says, you have been saved by faith in God's grace and not by works. So what does he mean when he, when he says, so how does our obedience produce, bring about our salvation? To really understand what he means here, we also have to look at the word salvation, that idea here, because I think sometimes we have too small or thin of an understanding of what that word means, salvation. Normally, when we think of salvation, we think of something in past tense, right? Have you been saved? I've been saved. When I invited Jesus into my heart and repented of my sins and trusted Him as my Lord and Savior, I was saved past tense. That's normally how we talk about salvation. And the Bible does use the, the word salvation in past tense. We just saw that. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. Paul says, past tense, Ephesians 2, something that's happened. It's the work of God. And yet, also, we find that salvation is present tense. So Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18. He'll say, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, there's present tense, so we have been saved, but we are also being saved. This is something that's happening to us now. It is the power of God. And he'll talk about salvation in the future tense. We see this here. This is, I believe, Romans 13. And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Hold on, I thought we were already saved. Our salvation is nearer. It's something that's ahead of us that we don't have yet that we're coming closer to each and every day. And so we see it talks about salvation in past tense at times, but also present. And then in future, what does that actually mean? And to really understand, I think, what that means, a helpful picture for us, we find in the Old Testament, we find in the, the analogy of the Exodus, that story of how God liberated His people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Because did you know that story is about Jesus? Did you know that story is about the gospel? Did you know everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus? I know we talk about stories in the Bible, but the, story, the Bible isn't full of stories. The Bible is a story. And so Jesus will say that all the Old Testament, all the law and prophets, all the scriptures speak about Him. They all point to Him. So whenever you're reading the Old Testament, the, the right question to ask is, what does this tell us about Jesus? How does this help us understand the gospel? Because all of that is a foreshadowing that points us to and helps us understand the hero of our salvation, Jesus Christ. So let's just take a minute to kind of revisit this story in the Old Testament, God's liberation of His people from slavery to uh, living in the promised land. And it really has three parts. You can throw that up there, Rob. If you know that story, there's really three kind of distinct parts of that liberation. First of all, there's the Red Sea, right? They're, they're enslaved to Pharaoh and God 
brings them out from slavery by bringing them through the Red Sea, miraculously, to the other side. And on the other side, they found what? The promised land? No. What did they find on the other side? Well, God brought them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, where you might remember he gave them his law. This is my will for you. This is how I want you to live. He gave that to them after he'd already liberated them, right? So he's brought them through the water. They're no longer slaves to Pharaoh. He's now given them his will. Now they're to practice this. And now they're on this journey. Now they, through the wilderness for, well, 40 years, which was a few years longer than they needed to because they took some detours. But during that time, they encountered lots of hard things, lots of hardships, rough terrain, um, a challenge finding enough food and water, nations that would come against them to oppose them and to destroy them. All of this happening as God was leading them to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, which eventually He brought them into, a land of rest. And what we have here is actually a picture of it helps us understand salvation because normally when we talk about salvation, we're actually just talking about the first part of it. Because those three stages of God's liberation kind of correspond with how Paul describes what salvation looks like. God has saved us. He has justified us. So the Bible talks about how we have been saved. We have been forgiven when we repented of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven and saved by God. We have been justified. The Bible always talks about that justification in past tense. It's happened. It's not going to happen. It's happened if we put our faith in Jesus. We've been declared innocent. And that's followed, Paul says, by the process of sanctification, where God, having freed us, now, now gives us His, His, His teaching. This is, this is how I want you to live now is mine, as someone who belongs to me. And, and the Bible calls that sanctification, right? This pro process of growing more like Christ, becoming holier, which ultimately ends in what Paul says when he talks about the future, our future salvation, our glorification, that a day is coming when our salvation, we will experience salvation fully and finally when God will usher in His kingdom fully and finally and we will dwell with God forever free from any blemish of sin or pain or suffering fully and finally saved and that's in the future. So when we talk about salvation, we normally talk about past tense. What we're really talking about is just the first part, justification. But, but salvation is actually the whole thing. God bringing them through the Red Sea out of slavery, through the wilderness on this journey to their final destination, right? The promised land, the land of milk and honey, the land of rest. Salvation is all of that, not just part of that. It is past for us. It is present because where are we now? We are in the wilderness. We are on the Christian journey, the journey of sanctification, heading towards that promised land. And it's so important that we understand the fullness of this salvation, that it's not just past tense, because if you think it's just past tense, it's just something that's already happened, you might look at your life and all the challenges and the hardships and go, what's going on here? What's wrong? Aren't I supposed to be in the promised land? I'm saved. And then we become kind of discouraged. Or if you think it's just something that's in the future, it's not something that's past, well, then you can be full of anxiety. What if I don't get there? 
What if I don't make it to that point? Paul in, in, in um, Philippians here typically talks about salvation in the future tense. He'll say in chapter 1, verse 19, that through the provision of the Spirit of Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. He says a few verses later in 28, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. He, he, he talks about the next chapter in chapter 3. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about that glorification. Like, I'm striving to be fully and finally saved. I am saved through Christ. I have been forgiven. I am in this process where God is working in my life. But I press on. I'm in the wilderness. I'm on this journey. And I'm pressing on. This is what he says. Forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What is that goal? What is that prize? It's that's salvation. To dwell with the Lord forever. He says, I, I haven't attained the full, I press on. I strive for that. That might all feel a little bit overwhelming, the sense that we have this command, this call to work out our salvation, to persist to continue in that direction because as Eugene Peterson says, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Working out is a continuous, sustained effort at following Jesus, following His, his example, striving to obey Him, to live for His glory. That's a slow process that takes a lifetime so Paul says, I strive so that I might attain, that I might get to the promised land. But he doesn't stop there. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he continues, for it is God who works. What does it say? What does it say? In you. For it is God who works alongside you. No. For it is God who works with you. No. For it's God who works for you? No. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. You know, like these two verses are, are, are equally challenging and encouraging. They're challenging and they're encouraging because we are called to persist, to continue, to strive, to obey, to produce that end to which God has called us. But he says, but that's not ultimately your work. It's not your work. You need to work, but your work is not decisive. God's work is decisive. It's not that God is just working to. It's that God is working in you at a very deep level. He says, God is working in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. To will. Which is saying that God is at work in your very being to bring about desire. 
to obey, to continue, to persist, to follow. And not just to, 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 to bring about in you the desire, but to bring that to fruition, to act. So, so, so he, he enables and empowers the desire, but also brings that fruitful outcome in order to fulfill his good purpose, his good pleasure. So it's not true that God helps those who help themselves. Because this isn't saying that God helps us do our work. We go halfway, and God comes halfway, and we meet in the middle, and it's this partnership. No, what Paul is saying here is what he, he said at the beginning of the letter in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He who began the work of salvation in you, when you came to believe, in Christ and repent of your sins and put your trust in Him, He who saved you and brought you through the Red Sea will be working in you to bring you through the wilderness, that whole journey, and bring you to your final destination, the promised land. He will do, enable that work. He is a decisive worker in us to bring that about. So, I mean... This, this, is, this is challenging. We got to work. But encouraging, God enables and empowers that work in us. He doesn't just help us do the work. He is doing the work in us. And this is not a disincentive. Oh, well, God's going to do it. It's God. All right, I'm going to sit on the couch. I'm going to eat potato chips. And he's just going to do it all. I, it, 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 it doesn't require effort. It doesn't require discipline. It doesn't require resisting temptation and sacrifice. I just, I can be passive because God's going to do it. I remember a few years ago um, seeing these electrodes, electrodes you put on your stomach, impulse your muscles. You see, I've got this dream. I have this dream that someday I will see my abs. I think I've shared this with you before. I never have. And it's always my New Year's resolution. This is getting the beer. I'm going to get the act together. And, but I think 2023 is the year. I really do. But, but then, I, then I, um, I saw this on TV and I thought, wow, look at that. You don't even have to do any work. You can just sit on the couch, watch TV, and eat potato chips, and get apps. These electrodes do all the work. It, you know what? It doesn't work. That was the worst 40 bucks I ever spent. What Paul is saying here, like when he says God is the one working in you to will and to act, this is not a disincentive to not work, to be passive. It's an incentive, right? It's an encouragement that God is working in us to bring it about. God causes the miracle of our obedience that leads to our salvation, but we must act the miracle. And this is, I guess, kind of the paradox. Was it my work or is it God's work? Mm -hmm. God causes the miracle of our obedience that leads to our salvation, not just through the Red Sea, but sustains us through the wilderness, through life, through all of its challenges, bringing us to the finality, the fullness of our salvation, where we will dwell with Him forever. He is the one who does, causes that miracle of obedience, but we must act the miracle. 
God doesn't replace us in the process. He works in us. And so if I were to boil that all down, maybe this would be the statement. This is what I think Paul is saying. Obedience is our responsibility, but it's God's ability. Obedience is our responsibility, but it's God's ability. Work out, for it is God who is working. So when he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, he's not saying, be afraid, be afraid that you might not make it. Right? This is not like going into a test and doing all the work to prepare, but, be, but be, being afraid that you might fail that test ultimately. This is not a fear of failure when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, he's taught... It might be better understood as awe and reverence. In the way you obey, like, treat God with the awe and reverence that He deserves. Like, look what He's done for you. Look how you were in slavery to sin in Egypt, powerless, helpless. Look what He did. Look how He brought you miraculously through the Red Sea. Look where He's bringing you. Look, look at this great inheritance that he has ahead for you. So work out your salvation with, with awe and reverence for God. We work because God is at work. So what does that mean for you? Maybe, maybe, maybe that challenges us a little bit, like we need to, we need to strive. We, we need to keep pressing in. Maybe some of us are feeling weary of good, or maybe like the Israelites, it was better back there. It was easier back there. Maybe I'll just turn around and head back there. Maybe that encourages you because so you, you wonder, is this something that I can do this whole Christian life? What he says is, obedience is our responsibility, but it is God's ability. So take heart. Paul here, just kind of in our last few moments, he's going to give us an example of working what it looks like to work out our salvation. And maybe in a bit of a surprising way, he says in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, if he was going to use a big example of what that looked like, it seems a little bit odd that he would focus on something that might seem a little small. Do everything without grumbling. What is he getting at here? Well, I think what he's saying is Christian perseverance is hard. It's difficult. Just like all those Israelites in the wilderness, how they faced a variety of challenges, rough terrain. You know, it's hard. Discipline, sacrifice, generosity, to forgive. You know, to, to live humbly. You know, to turn away from sin, to, to, to wrestle against temptation. It's hard. You know, when, the odd time when I jog, it's a lot easier to jog with the wind at your back. It's like, oh. And then... And then in Blind River, where I live, there's always this prevailing wind, and my jog always started with the wind. And I always felt so good until I had to go home. And then I would just hitchhike. I, I turn around, and I'm like, oh my God. 
running into the wind. And sometimes that's what it feels like. You know, like we, we, are, we are running against the wind. We are swimming against the current. The Christian perseverance is difficult. And we might, like the Israelites, be tempted to grumble about all of that and lose sight of God's redemption in the past like they did. Hey, this is the God who brought you through the Red Sea. Do you remember that? This is the God who's bringing you to this promised land, this land of, of milk and honey. But they were just, they were so focused on that, whatever thing that they were going through that caused them to grumble. Paul will say here, we need to remember who we are. He'll say in the next few words in verse 15, you are children of God. Children of God. In Christ, you are a son or a daughter of God. Do you know what God possesses? Can you imagine if you had a great aunt? This is our dream, isn't it? Who never found love. Never spent any of her money. And then you found out she was... How many millions did Grandma have? And she, let her, she left it to me? Anyway. Maybe I'm the only one. Imagine you have a great aunt who just left you this huge estate and you had to drive to pick it up, to go take possession of this. So you, so you get in your car and you're driving and then you find yourself in slow traffic and you're just moaning, oh, the traffic is horrible. I can't believe the traffic. Oh, the traffic. And then you come to the toll, $10. $10 for a toll. The toll is expensive. The toll is expensive and then you're a mile away from taking possession of this great estate and your car breaks down and you have to walk that last mile and you walk it kind of wringing your hands and just mumbling, murmuring to yourself, my car is broken. My car is broken. What would you call that person? A fool maybe, right? He says, you are children of God. You are rich. You have this incredible inheritance that belongs to you, that should negate any grumbling, any grievance, and replace it with a spirit of gladness and a spirit of joy. Because if you live in the spirit of joy that comes from the gospel, that comes from your salvation, that has happened, is happening, and will happen, then you will shine like stars in the sky. So I I think our shine here is the opposite of the grumbling. Don't grumble, but shine. So our shininess, I think, that really stands out, that attracts the attention of a dark world is a spirit of gratitude and joy that we have in spite of the circumstances that we face. You know, if if there's a type of grumbling that we are prone to, especially today as Christians, I think it's like grumbling about the world. Grumbling about the darkness around us. Do you ever grumble about the world? You do it to yourself. You do it in your prayer group. You do it in your small group, maybe, with your friends. Oh, the world. When I was, they had prayer in school. Can you believe it? Look, 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 look what they do. And then we look at the darkness, and we, it's, I think, unfortunately, I think through COVID, especially, Christians maybe have gained a reputation 
for being grumbly. Those who want to diagnose the darkness. Those who want to identify the darkness and condemn the darkness out in the world. And he says, you, you are children of God living in a warped and crooked generation and there is a lot of darkness around us. But he says, don't have a spirit of grumbling because grumbling never fixed the darkness. Telling the dark that it's dark doesn't make the dark any less dark. Condemning the dark doesn't make the dark any less dark. He says, shine your light. The only thing that negates and overcomes darkness is light. So don't have this negative posture, this grumbling spirit about the the corruption and the crookedness and the warpness and the darkness of the world. Darkness will be dark. You know, I... Sometimes I get mad at my dog for doing dog things. If you have a dog, maybe you're like this. And I'm not super patient, but I'm like, stop licking yourself. Do you see me licking myself? Don't lick yourself. And he doesn't listen. He keeps, he just, all the time he's licking himself. And... Why does he have to take five minutes to find a place to poop? Like, honestly, have you ever taken a picture of your dog? And you're like, what are you looking for? What are you looking for in that exact spot? You sniff there, and that's not good enough. What are you looking for? And like, especially when, like, so, so this is what I'll do. When it's cold outside now, in the winter, especially, I want to get inside. Cooper, poop already. Cooper kind of yanking on, come on, do your business, let's go. Nope, he's got to, I can see it coming out of his butt even, like he's got to go, but this is not good enough. He has to, I don't know what he's looking for, but I find myself sometimes like um, getting mad at my dog for doing dog things. And I wonder if we as Christians, if, if what he's kind of saying, don't be like that. Don't just get mad and condemning and grumbling at the dark for being dark. That won't change anything. Be distinctive in the way you act. If If anger and grumbling is the language of the stark world around you, then be distinctive. Have a different spirit. Not a negative posture, but a positive one that shines gratitude and gladness. That comes from Jesus. That will be seen. That joy is distinctive. And so Paul is, he'll say in Colossians uh, chapter 4, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Salt, light. It reminds you of the words of Jesus in in, in Matthew chapter 5. 
when he says this in verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your, say it, reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And what is that light that's supposed to shine that's distinctive? Well, I think he's talking again about that joy and gladness. When you face all these circumstances and when you're opposed and even persecuted, be glad and rejoice because you have this great reward. Shine! Be different. And when people through that joy that comes from Jesus, from that gladness, that gratitude, They will see, it said, Jesus says, they will, then they will see your good deeds and they will glorify your Father in heaven. It will, it will stand out. It will stand out. It will demand the attention of the world because it is so distinct. He says, don't do, do, do um, everything without grumbling. The light we have, of course, is not our own. The light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. We're just reflectors of the light of Christ. That's Him shining through us. That joy, that gladness. As the angels would announce to the shepherds there 2,000 years ago, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Savior. And just think of Christmas. For God so loved the world, did he not see the darkness? Was he blind? No. He saw all the sin, all the evil, all the darkness. For God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we don't often get to verse 17, but I'm glad we read it when we lit the Advent candle. But uh, this is what Jesus continues in, in John 3, 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. I mean, God would have had every right to look on us, to look on our darkness and condemn us, but He didn't. He sent His Son as the light of the world to show a different way. Now, as we read in John 3 a few minutes ago, the darkness it will be condemned. But as Jesus would go on to say, people will condemn themselves by, by rejecting the light. Right? But God does not condemn the world, but He sent His Son to save. And I'm so glad He did. And just as Jesus is the light of the world, we are called to be the light of the world. As Paul says, you are children of God. Put, reject the spirit of grumbling 
Instead, shine like stars in the, sh- in the sky. Shine your joy, shine your gladness, shine your gratitude. It comes from the gospel to those around you, and it will be seen. You will stand out. And that's what the world needs, right? The, the darkness never got any less dark by being told how dark it is by being condemned for its darkness. The only thing that can overcome darkness is light. We are those then that are to be that light in the world, the reflectors of Jesus. So, bringing this to a close... There's just a question for you. Are you more focused on condemning darkness or shining light? Do you expend more time, energy, words in bemoaning and grumbling about the world around you or by showing a different way? Through the way that you live. The only thing that can overcome darkness is light. Let me just close before we pray by reading these words of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Father, would you show us how we can put into practice these words. Lord, would you speak to us right now? I'm sure there are some in this room right now that are just struggling to continue to to press on and to persevere in following you that, that maybe just want to throw in the towel. Lord, would you... Would you just encourage them? Would you encourage us, God, just and strengthen us to keep to keep going? Lord, just enable us to walk this path that you have us on because we know where it leads. It leads somewhere glorious. And we count it a privilege to know you. We follow you, God, not out of fear of your wrath. If we fear and tremble before you, it's because you are awesome. We, you are the best thing we have. You are worthy of all of our lives. So, Lord, would you just empower us to continue to keep working? Would you show us, God, how we can be 
light in this world. There's just so much darkness around us, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go into it, Lord. We're going to leave here in a few minutes, and we're going to find it. We're going to find it maybe in our homes, and maybe in our neighborhoods, or our workplaces, or our schools, Lord. And instead of being people who um, grumble about the darkness of the dark, Lord, would you just show us how we can shine our light um, and show the difference that Jesus makes in us, the joy and the gladness that he brings. Lord, just use us to shine the light um, of the gospel, the light of Jesus to this world that so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.